So we're going to be in John chapter 18 this morning. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it to that chapter, uh, 18, verse 33 through 37. John 8, or John 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Do you say this on your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Uh, Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Uh, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might uh, not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of or not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For it is this purpose that I was born, and when I was purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? I'm always amazed at what the lectionary puts out as the particular passage to study and to go through each week. And this one specifically, I had a hard time with. I'm like, are you sure? If this is really... I'm not sure how this fits into pre-Thanksgiving sort of, you know, gluttony. Uh, Maybe we should have gone into the seven deadly sins, you know, stuffing, turkey, (laughs) pumpkin pie, that sort of thing. But it was this instead. And so I remember wrestling with this throughout the week. And um, I think that God has something in here for us to, uh, to take away and something that is actually meaningful and practical for our lives. Uh, But go with me a little bit and see where we go. Uh, in our country, we have witnessed in the past, uh, a year ago, we witnessed um, uh, an uprising of violence in our country that, frankly, not many of us uh, ever thought we'd ever see. Whether, whether you're on one side of the political aisle or the other, we all have to admit that it was a very strange and uh, disturbing sight, something to watch. One group of people trying to wrest control from another group of people through the use and means of force and violence. Uh, and it should not have been. But I think about how that particular situation in our society happened. And yet, if we go backwards in time to when Jesus was on trial for his life, what did he do? How did he respond? And we have this passage. So there's a few things I want to point out this morning in this passage that uh, are interesting. And first and foremost is that uh, we need to recognize where Jesus was and where, what he was facing at the moment. Uh, and if we remember our scriptures, we know that Jesus was in, uh, on trial for his life. He had been whipped and flogged and put a, a robe on him and, and uh, humiliated in front of the, of the, uh, the Jewish high priest uh, and the Romans. And they had beaten the snot out of him. And he is in front of Pilate now again. And Pilate has his life in his hands. And again, he presses Jesus and says, who are you? What have you done? Jesus has this uh, moment where he can choose, at least in our minds, one of two things, fight or flight. When we're put into a dangerous situation, uh, we have this adrenaline rush that will either enable us to stand up and, uh, and to fight to the death, pretty much, or to run as fast as the wind. 
And let me tell you this silly, silly story uh, about that. There, uh, the movie Gremlins came out in probably 1985 or 86. And I remember my parents giving my sister and I money to go see the movie because we thought, well, this is great. So we walked to the movie theater on the base. And we got to the movie theater and watched the movie and uh, came out. It was dark. And I heard a twig break. And I had that moment where flight. I ran, leaving my... <laughs> 10-year-old sister behind, and I ran all the way home. In the moment of perception of danger, I chose to run. So Jesus, in this moment of danger, in the moment where his life is hanging in the balance, he has uh, uh, this sense, he probably, in his physical sense, probably had this sense of like, I'm, you know, either fight or flight, or there's a third option in which he chooses Rather than running away, or rather than fighting, Jesus stands in the pocket and delivers. One of the best things that we watch when we watch football, and most of us in here are football fans, uh, is when we watch the, uh, the quarterback take the ball from the center, and he backs up just a bit, and the world collapses around him. His, uh, his offensive line makes this circle around him, and he just stands tall and delivers the pass. And there's nothing better as a football fan to watch everything falling apart around, your, uh, around you, and yet the quarterback is laser-focused on his receiver and delivers the ball. Just when he thought everything was going to run or go crazy, he could have fallen down, he could have run, he could have done whatever, but he didn't. He stood tall. And Jesus, in the same way, stands tall in the midst of this persecution, this unjust trial, and deals with Pilate. He delivers this set of sentences, these, these phrases, these words, this pregnant sense uh, of, of Scripture here and that affirms all at once his messiahship, the nature of his kingdom, and his divinity. Jesus doesn't run. Jesus doesn't fight. He stands in the pocket and delivers. And when he does this, he describes the origins and the nature of his own kingdom in light of these circumstances. He goes on to say that his kingdom is over and above earthly kingdoms and governments. It's not some sort of hierarchy and some sort of like triangle pyramid scheme where there's God up here and then everything else underneath it. No, what he seems to be saying is that his government, his rule, his reign is over and above and below and through. It is the meta kingdom that surrounds all things. He goes on to say that the genesis of of the kingdom of God is not... Uh, does not come from the mind of humans, but from the eternal existence of God himself. This is not, like I said, not a hierarchy of authority, but rather this concept that God's sphere of influence, his kingdom, is permeating all things, the very fabric of reality. And that all forms of human government are made possible only by him and are subject to his authority. In a sense, Jesus is communicating the rock-solid, immovable uh, uh, nature of his kingdom that it cannot be moved, even with, the, even with the, um, the posturing of human authorities. Jesus stands in the pocket because he knows that his kingdom is secure. And that even though he is going to his death, that does not change the reality, it does not change the ultimate truth that God's kingdom rules and reigns. It is over and above all things but also that his kingdom has this understanding of universal truth. It has the best understanding of reality at its core. When Jesus says, I have come to bear witness to the truth, and all who believe in the truth listen to my voice, 
Truth here doesn't necessarily mean to describe a, a set of core principles or facts that we all agree on, like the sky is blue or that it, it, uh, the Broncos are terrible or whatever it happens to be. You know, this core set of things that we all agree on, but rather truth here is another word for reality. The nature of how things really are. So truth equals the real. So if we put it in that context, Jesus says, I know what is real. I know what everything, I know the, the reality beyond what you can see, taste, and, and sense, beyond the, the senses that we have. Jesus seems to be using this word here to say that he has this divine understanding of the visible and the invisible nature of all things. He sees things as they really are. The apex of the movie The Matrix shows that when Neo dies in that alleyway after getting shot all those times, and he comes back to life uh, miraculously, he sees things as they really are. And he recognizes that the, the things that are in front of him are not really threats, and that, that he can walk through them and he can defeat them. And in the same way, I think that Jesus, when he looks at Pilate and looks at his impending death, does not see that defeat, rather he sees victory. And he says, I'm going to move right through this. I'm going to go through some things. It's going to look bad. It's going to look like we've lost. But in the end, it's really life. And in the end, it is, uh, it is the way things ought to be. Jesus describes his mission as being one who has come to witness or to make known the nature of true reality to the blind and deaf world to show what God values and how humanity works best. A kingdom that is rooted in eternal relationships that are connected by love and grace. Jesus describes his followers as servants, which could be more accurately described as, as co-workers, ministers, as ambassadors, or as, as, as witnesses. And he has this personal invested interest in them as image bearers of God and for the good news. That God now relates to people as Father in relationship or, uh, that mirrors Jesus' own. And Jesus goes on finally to describe the behavior of those who are in his kingdom. Notice what he says. He says, you notice that my followers are not out there fighting. I mean, if your leader, if your religious leader, or if your, uh, uh, your leader of your country was somehow captured by an authority uh, that was against you, um, you would raise up to arms. If our president of the United States was suddenly you know, removed by a foreign power, our military would rise up and go get him. And they would lay waste to anybody in, in order to make that happen. But Jesus says, notice what's happening here. My followers are not out there taking up arms. My followers are not out there subverting governments. My followers are not out there doing it. No, because my kingdom is secure. And they know that. His, his followers have been paying attention to Jesus' way of life. They've been paying attention to his words. They've been paying attention to the Sermon on the Mount where it says, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those of the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. These are the kinds of people in God's kingdom. And they put God's words into actions. They, they've been willingly adjusting their very manner of living to emulate Jesus in his ways. And his co-workers or his co-laborers are becoming more like him every day. Jesus describes his followers as nonviolent, Those who are not physically attacking or defending the kingdom of God. They are those who lay their lives down rather in the same way that Jesus is about to in this story. Those who follow Jesus give up their lives in order to gain it. That's what's going on in this story. But you might be thinking, you're saying, well, great, that's interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Um, but what does it mean? What does it mean for us in 2021? Here amongst friends, 
what do Jesus' words mean to us today? Here's what I think. And if you feel like, you know, or beating me up later, that's fine. I think Jesus is, Jesus is commanding us to be witnesses, not warriors. Jesus is commanding us to be witnesses, not warriors. What I mean by a warrior is that there in our in our culture we value the strong and that we value the, the the one who the champion who can go in and slay the enemy. We value this machismo. We value this you know strongness and like you know let's charge the gates kind of person. But Jesus seems to be saying to us this morning that he wants witnesses, not warriors, because if the kingdom of God is secure. It is unmovable and not under any real threat by humanity or spiritual forces of darkness. There's absolutely no need to engage in violence on God's behalf. Many years ago, uh, before, my t- before I was born, I believe uh, th- there used to be a pattern in some uh, places where there was uh, a prayer before every school, every school day. And for some reason, at some point, that was removed. And we don't have prayer in schools anymore. But people uprose, freaked out, as if that had been the ultimate cardinal sin. Suddenly, we don't have prayer in schools, and all these other social ills have suddenly come from that. And we must rise up and become uh, and be culture warriors for God and take back those things. And I think God is going, I, I just want you to witness to the power of my love in culture rather than stand for these you know, go and fight for something that you don't need to fight for. I think we often, in our minds, either uh, uh, justify violence when we wrongly associate God's kingdom with a country or kingdom that we are citizens of. And I think Jesus wants us to know that, that none of the kingdoms of this world are the kingdom of God. America is not the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Israel is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's overarching rule and reign that permeates all societies. And it is unmovable, and he doesn't need warriors. He needs witnesses. God does not need us to defend him. He's pretty good on that on his own. Rather, he needs us as witnesses. Those of us who stand in the pocket and deliver and say, My God, so love the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will have a quality of relationship with God that you cannot get anywhere else. Eternal life. He calls us to be witnesses. But oftentimes, and unfortunately, we have all of our times watching uh, trials on TV or watching Judge Wapner or, or uh, uh, Judge Judy or whatever, we think of a witness as somebody who sits up on the stand and, get, and tells their story and then gets cross-examined and it's this dramatic sort of law and order you know, moment. And that, that's not what witness really means in the biblical world. To speak Jesus' gospel truthfully and completely and to... to Witness to what is real. That's witnessing. In the sense that we, we recognize that God created a good world. And he created you and I in his image. And that we bear the image of our Father in heaven. But yet, humanity rebelled against God and corrupted that good image. But because God so loved us and loved his good creation, he sent his one and only Son to redeem the world through him. 
And God has given us uh, an opportunity to have a place in his story of redemption through our faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And God wants uh, to redeem the world rather than seeing it burnt to the ground. This is the good news. This is God's reality. This is what we stand up for and we say to people, we don't lead with, you're going to burn. No, we lead with, God loves you. And wants to be reunited with you. And he has made it possible. He's already been done. Everything that needs to be done has been done. Wouldn't you like to be a part of this joyful new world that God is creating? Wouldn't you want to be a part of being reconnected with the reality that is, rather than the one you're trying to create for yourself? God wants us to be those who are capable to stand and deliver when necessary. With just the words, not our fists. With, with compassion and mercy and joy and kindness. But not only to that, not only our words, but we are meant to be witnesses who embody Jesus' own manner of living. If we are considered to be those who are all about life, we need to live it in such a way that models the way that Jesus did. Does your life look like his? Are you merciful and kind? Do you look out for those who are oppressed and that are singled out in society, for those that are marginalized? Do you love without borders? Are you interested in justice? Jesus is looking for witnesses, not warriors. So we venerate warriors in our culture, but God desires saints. Not all of us can be warriors, but we can all be saints. Yes, you can be a saint. You may not have that funky, you know, yellow disc around your head in a painting, but there can be a St. Ken. There can be a St. Tammy. There can be a St. Glenda. There can be St. Jake. Not because of what we've done, but simply because we've given our lives over to, to Jesus and decided that we are going to walk and live just like him. We can all be like St. Teresa of Calcutta. Each one of us has that capability because of the Spirit of God living within us. We need to be witnesses, not warriors. C.S. Lewis was once quoted as saying, I was made for another place. He says, joy is the signal that, uh, that I can't, uh, that there's something outside of me that I uh, need to live for, that I need to experience, and I'm not finding it in this life, so therefore I was made for somewhere else. And to give our lives need to be a witness that gives everyone else around us the sense that we are on our way towards something more joyful and more wonderful. And then our lives are being prepared for a life that will even supersede the one that we are in. Jesus' resurrection gives us a glimpse into the hope of the life to come, a life of total joy and total purpose and total meaning. A world that is scrubbed from the grime of rebellion and exudes this joyful vibrancy. This is the world that Jesus has prepared us for and that our lives must be a living signpost for. You and I are made to be witnesses, not warriors. So how do we, how do we deal with this? What's our response? I confess that for a good portion of my Christian walk, probably from 20 to 40, I was a warrior. Culture warrior for Jesus. Wearing the t-shirts and the hats and wearing listening to all the music and wanting to, you know, rally and, 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 and you know, uh, uh, storm the gates by force. But what it did to me was it made me into a spiritual jerk. 
someone that nobody would want to listen to Jesus about. Jesus wants me to be a witness. That means that I need to abandon this whole idea of, uh, of defending God. He doesn't need my defense. He needs my witness. So your first thing that I, would, I encourage you to do is if that's you, I want you to lay it down. So when you walk out of here today, you lay your, your, your you know, machismo and armor and all the whatever it is that you think that you, that you need to do to, to defend God. Leave it here. God will go with you when you leave. And just, just live a life that is meaningful and purposeful. Lead, lead a life that it looks like Jesus. That's enough. Second thing I, would, I think we ought to do is not only replace this warrior idea for a witness idea, but to rewire your mind with the reality that Jesus proclaimed. What does that look like? If we want to know what the world that Jesus is remaking looks like, we need to be in the scriptures. We need to be in the scriptures reading and hearing and witnessing and imagining and really just immersing ourselves in what, he, what God says to us about who he is, what the nature of reality is, and what the world coming will look like. We need to commune with God in prayer. And not just with words constantly, but just being with God. When I go running each morning, that doesn't necessarily look like what most people think about when it comes to prayer. But that is my time with God where I'm just with God. Nothing else matters. It's just me and God and the stars. And it's our time. That's prayer. That's where I commune with God. I don't know what that looks like for you. But I encourage you to to rewire our mind of, of what real reality looks like. We need to be in the Word. We need to be praying. And then we need to worship together like we do here. Worship is not just so we can check a spiritual box off. Rather, it is a rehearsal for the life to come, a rehearsal for the, for the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we will sit down with all of humanity who has placed their faith in Christ, for all of those Jesus has saved by his death and resurrection, and we will sit with them at this giant table, I imagine, and it won't be just a little plastic cup and a, and a gluten-free cracker. It'll be a spread. It'll ha- it's going to have your salad. Linda, it's going to have it. It's going to be there. We're going to have resurrection potatoes, not funeral potatoes, and we're going to have ham. It's going to be great. Whatever's going to be there, but we're going to be with all of humanity, rejoicing and celebrating together this new world of meaning and purpose and the way God intended it to be. And worship, when we come here, is just practice. We're practicing what it's going to look like in some way. And the last thing, we need to learn to restructure our relationships with people. There have been way too many people in our culture and in our time that have been hurt by the church because we have chosen to be warriors, not witnesses. And those disaffected and abandoned people groups um, have uh, need us. But they need us to come alongside of them, to walk with them, to be near them, and to be in such a way that we look like Jesus. Because I tell you what, every person who's been affected by the church in some negative way, if they, were, they like Jesus a whole lot. But as Christians, we have some catching up to do. We need to restructure how we relate to people. Learn to love first. Learn to love in the middle. And learn to love last. 
God will take care of whatever thing you think that they're dealing with as you take care of whatever you're dealing with. And as we walk together as broken people with the Savior of all humanity, they'll see Jesus. And really, that's what we want because that's what witnesses do. They don't need browbeating. They need real people who are with Jesus and are beginning to look like him. I don't really have a mission. I think those will work for you. Pick one and go with it. This morning, as we uh, prepare our hearts to...